Welcome to the Here at Haas podcast. I'm your host, Sean Lee, and today we're joined by Almaz Ali, Semi Tamalo, and Lula Desta. Can you all briefly introduce yourselves to our listeners? Hi, everyone. I'm Almaz, a second year student in the full time MBA program here at Berkeley Haas. Hey, everybody. My name is Semi. I am a first year at Haas's full time MBA program. Hello, my name is Lula, and I'm a second year undergrad studying public health. Today, you know, we're here to talk about Tigray. Can you guys help us understand what's happening? Tigray is located in the northernmost state in Ethiopia. It's bordered by Eritrea to its north, who it has had a long and complicated history with, and Sudan to the west, and has a population of 7.1 million people. And on the day of November 4th, 2020, when the world's eyes were glued to the U.S. presidential election, the Ethiopian federal government, led by Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed, declared war on the elected ruling party of the Tigray state, the Tigray People's Liberation Front, widely known as TPLF. Inviting foreign forces using airstrikes to target populated areas and imposing a complete telecommunication blackout quickly helped bring to light that the federal government was in fact not targeting the TPLF, but instead the Tigray people. In the last 180 days since this genocidal war started, over 50,000 people have been killed in over 150 massacres. Over 91% of Tigray's population is on the brink of starvation, and over 80% of the hospitals and health centers in Tigray are no longer functioning, and an estimated 10,000 cases of sexual violence committed by federal soldiers against girls as young as four. I would like to emphasize that due to the fact that 80% of Tigray is still inaccessible by UN and other aid agencies, these numbers have conservatively been estimated. But even with their conservative estimates, we can still see the clear urgency in Tigray. Yeah, and I also think that it's really important to note here that this war didn't happen overnight. This war was planned. So before the official start of the war in November, Tigrayans were being targeted and disenfranchised in Ethiopia. The world had high hopes for the unelected prime minister, Abiy Ahmed of Ethiopia. He was even given the Nobel Peace Prize for, quote unquote, making peace with Eritrea. And so... PM Abiy Ahmed partnered with Eritrea's dictator, Isaiah Safarwerki, since they share this common enemy, which is the TPLF, and to be perfectly honest, the people of Tigray as well. To put things into context, Eritrea is a repressive country, and despite being a population of 3.2 million people, Eritrea was Africa's largest single source of refugees to Europe from 2014 to 2016. Safarwerki has been in power for almost 30 years and holds a deep animosity for Tigray's leaders, which has been festering for decades. So this peace agreement that was made between Ethiopia and Eritrea was signed and implemented without any input whatsoever from Tigrayans and the Tigray government. And so following the signing, um, Abiy and Isaias shared their military capabilities. Abiy visited the Eritrean military training center. And days before the war even officially started, the Eritrean embassy in Ethiopia posted an editorial piece explicitly warning the TPLF that game over means game over. And this is really significant, right? Because the Ethiopian government has been claiming at the start of this war that it was going to be a quick five-day type law and order mission against the TPLF, that they weren't going to harm Tigrayan civilians. And Abiy even claimed victory back in November, but the war has been ongoing for six months. And you have folks like Jeffrey Feltman, who was a recent American envoy to the Horn of Africa, stating that the war on Tigray could make Syria look like child's play by comparison, and that Tigray has just become a whopping great big concentration camp. The people are dying under circumstances that are horrific. 
On top of this, Abiy took steps to weaken Tigray before the official start of the genocidal war. He allowed for road blockades to Tigray, um, blocking grains and food from entering. He reduced Tigray's budget. He hindered the fight against the locust infestation that had threatened the harvest and the livelihood of millions of Tigrayans. And this just really all points to the fact that this war was coming and many people in the region had felt like a war was going to be coming soon. Thank you, Almas. And with that, with why people thought this war would be coming, it's important to understand the historical context and how this is not the first time that the Ethiopian government has committed acts of genocide against their own people. So first, I'm going to take it back to like back in the day when we still had emperors and it was known as Abyssinia. Back then, Abyssinia was ruled as a system of many kingdoms ruled by hereditary princes with one emperor to rule over the entire empire. Hela Selassie, who was the last emperor of Ethiopia, what he did was he pushed a one Ethiopian narrative as a way to consolidate this historically decentralized power into one centralized power. And in doing so, what he did was he implemented some of rules to essentially crush anything that differed from his version of one Ethiopia. So for example, Ethiopia is a country of over 80 different ethnicities and many religions. He instituted Amharic because he said Amhara as the primary language and language of the government as a way to erase culture. He also instituted Orthodox Christianity as the state religion, even though there was a quite large Muslim population, almost 40% of the country's Muslim. And through these things, he instituted acts to suppress people. For example, this included the genocide of the Harari people, which is a Muslim minority in Eastern Ethiopia. While this was going on, there were Tagaru or Tigrayans who were trying to resist this type of rule. This became known as the Wayane Rebellion. This was in 1943. And so they resisted this active rule. And how they were suppressed was how Selassie got assistance from the British Air Force, who bombarded his own people as a way to quash the rebellion. And so I'm going to fast forward a few decades after Hela Selassie was removed from power by the Derg. The Derg, which is the Communist Party, had also instituted some ethnic killings of their own. For example, a lot of people, when they think back to the 80s, they think of the famine in Tigray that primarily affected Tigray. But what had caused it, people said it was a drought, but what primarily caused it was blocking of food to people in the Tigray region and other estimates that 1.2 million people, primarily Tigaru, had died from starvation during the takeover by the Derg. So for people who are living to this day, the older generation, like our grandparents' generation, this is the third time in their life that they had seen an act of genocide committed by the Ethiopian government. So Semi and Amaz, last time that we had spoken, you guys have shared that experience of your families under persecution as refugees back in the late 80s, early 90s. Can you share a little bit about the history of your families? Yeah. So during that time period where the Derg had essentially created an environment where they were starving folks and there was active warfare, my mom is a young teenager. She was around 15 years old, made her way on foot from Ethiopia to Sudan with a lot of other people who were making the same journey. And so they would typically walk at night because during the day there would be active warfare. And it was the TPLF fighters that also helped guide them to get to Sudan and helped them as they were making this journey. And so it was in Sudan where my parents met and where I was born. There are a number of Tigrayans of my generation who were also born in Khartoum, Sudan, and in various other parts of Sudan, and as our parents escaped, persecution as refugees. Yeah, similarly, my parents both immigrated to Sudan. 
My dad, at the age of 12, ran away from his village by himself and walked for 12 days straight to get to a Sudanese refugee camp. My mom, years prior, at the age of three, her parents literally walked through the Tekezi River, which is a body of water that separates Tigray and Sudan, to escape the war that was launched against the Tigray people, really. So seeing no safety for themselves and a future for themselves in Ethiopia, they were forced to flee. They lived in Sudan in the refugee camps for over 17 years. That's where my parents met, where they had my first two sisters, and they were eventually able to get papers and come to America. So for my family, um, it's a little different. My mom, her family had sent her away after her brothers had been killed by the Dirk, and so she was sent away to Italy to live with other family. Once she was able to get her papers, she made her way to D.C. And then for my father, what he did was he was an employee of Ethiopian Airlines. He was a mechanic and he got on a plane. He went to Yemen and he never went back. And from there, he just made his way to the U.S. where he also went to D.C. and then he met my mom there. Just kind of hearing your family's history being reflected in the stories of other folks within diaspora is always sobering because you just realize how this really was a collective trauma. And so I'd like to continue to keep this at the individual level and kind of ask, how has the war impacted your families now, both here in the States and then also back home in Tigray? Yeah, it's hard to describe what it's like. You know, I mentioned this is for some, like to the relive trauma for, you know, my parents and, and my grandma. So most of my family is throughout Tigray. And when the war initially started, like many others, we just were not able to get into contact with them which was incredibly nerve-wracking. I think, like I said, my family spread out through the entire state, but I think the worst was my grandma, who's bedridden, and, you know, just you're just hearing the shelling of Makala and knowing that she can't physically leave and you can't call her was just hard to deal with. I'm sorry. But she's fine. We, we were able to get in contact with her. But I think, like, once the phone lines opened up and hearing that she was okay, but also other family throughout the state had lost their homes, had were fleeing throughout the state, as well as people just being arrested. Um, families just who have no political involvement being arrested and, and sitting in jail it has just been a lot. And I think in addition to that, you know, you see these news stories of bodies littered throughout the streets. People are being denied access to food and just healthcare being horrific. My parents, it's just like they're reliving what happened to them in the 70s and 80s with the Dirk. And so they thought that this was behind them, but to know that this is happening again a few decades later has just been incredibly horrific. And I think something I want to also highlight is like, there's just a general sense of loss, especially for my parents. When they came here, like for them, it was about survival. They didn't want to be here, but they made the best that they could. And so they'd always planned to go back to Ethiopia. They had set things in motion and to know that, you know, this may not be a reality for them as my parents are getting older. It's just like, I feel incredibly sad for them to know that they don't necessarily have a home to go back to and that their country had forsaken them. Yeah, thank you for sharing that, Semi. Yeah, this war has been absolutely devastating for my family too, especially for my parents, because it's like in a way they're reliving this trauma from afar, which I think kind of makes it harder. For the last 180 days, my dad has not been able to contact his family whatsoever. And I think that adds the anxiety of like, we don't even know if my dad's side of the family is even alive. And we don't know if they're even refugees or if they're starving to death right now. And it's like thinking back, my grandma has PTSD from the Derg. When she came to visit us in 2018 here in the States, 
it was around 4th of July. And every time she'd hear firework, like you could just see like how anxious she would get and how nervous she would get. She would constantly ask us over and over, what is that? Is someone coming? And we just have to like constantly remind her. And at the time, I thought it was a little weird. But after reliving and seeing what's happening now, it makes me even more sad. And I think there's this sense of guilt that I feel also of the fact that my cousins who are currently back home experiencing this have to deal with the same pain our parents did. But out of luck, I don't have to. And I do feel like because of that, I do have to work 10 times harder to advocate for them because I feel like it's my duty. Yeah, I think what has been really heartbreaking about this entire thing is just this realization that our parents' generation never even had the ability to recover. Like they went from that to coming here and then their whole lives were pretty much centered around making sure that we had access to opportunities and navigating a new land after being forced to migrate. I never understood why my mom didn't like traveling for the sake of traveling until it hit me that because every other time that she's had to travel in her life, it's been forced migration and it's not this millennial wanderlust that I have. And so it's also been like really heartbreaking because similar to what some of you had said earlier, there's this kind of dream that you could kind of like retire somewhere where you can speak the language without an accent. You can feel at home. You can like return. And Tigray was at a place where it was recovering. The people who are fleeing to refugee camps, like these are everyday people. They're teachers, they're doctors, they're farmers, and there are families. I mean, I just remember when the news was dropping and Tigray was under attack and my mom's trying to get a hold of her family and the phone lines are out and they're not working. And it just brings this heaviness and it just brings this like understanding that you just don't know. You don't know if people are going to be okay or not. And it's hard to like collectively mourn and at the same time be in this place where you're trying to advocate for folks back home and our families back home. And I think for me, it's just kind of led to this new level of respect for my mother and folks like her, you know. I've always respected her and knew of her story, but I think now as an adult, just kind of witnessing things unfolding and kind of being able to understand how destructive war is while simultaneously recognizing that I can never fully comprehend its devastation in comparison to those who have actually lived through it is sobering. You know, there's been very little news coverage despite six months of active war now. That's half a year. Why is that? And what has the international community done about it? So the war was launched November 4th, and the world is pretty much fixated on the U.S. elections. Biden and Trump dominated the news. And then there was COVID and the pandemic, and the West was being hit pretty hard, right, during that time period. Mm-hmm. And so on top of this, the unelected Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed created a communications blackout in Tigray. And as like Lula stated earlier, 80% of Tigray is still not reachable by even the UN or other agencies. So this war was designed to be fought in the dark. I mean, it's really mind-boggling because even refugees have been stopped from fleeing. The very start of the war, you had like an influx of 70,000 refugees who fled into Sudan. And then after that, the Ethiopian government just stopped allowing refugees to flee and civilians to flee. And so they've just become internally displaced people. And all we've been hearing from like UN officials and governments is that they're concerned They acknowledge the ethnic cleansing. They acknowledge the atrocities that are being committed, that humanitarian aid is being blocked, that there's weaponized starvation and weaponized rape. But there's been largely no action. There's no intervention. And when Rwanda happened and after Rwanda happened, 
the world said that they would never allow for this to happen again. And you have all these days around genocide awareness and we're not supposed to allow for these atrocities to happen, but it's literally happening. And Rwanda lasted 100 days and we're close to 200 days into this Tigray genocide and there's been no sign of stopping. Yeah, just to add on what Alma said, it also seems like war and genocide has become so normalized when it happens in developing countries, specifically countries made up of black and brown bodies. That like when it occurs, we don't get the same attention and sympathy we would expect if this would have happened here in the United States or in a place like England. And it's frustrating because like Alma said, UN and other aid agencies constantly say never again. But here we are, 2021, and there's a genocide happening in Tigray and no one has intervened and no one has done anything to help the people. So one thing we definitely want to highlight is just this political narrative around what's going on in Tigray, specifically Tigray's want for self-determination. That's just been something that's been existing throughout our history because consistently we're seeing the Ethiopian government crushing Tigrayans' ethnic identity as well as languages and religion by being forced to like talk another language or do whatever it needs to do in order to exist within this one Ethiopian narrative. Tigray and Tigaders in general are not looking for issues. They just want to be able to peacefully exist as they have been for thousands of years and not be forced to assimilate into a foreign culture. Yeah. What's been particularly disturbing is the scale and velocity at which these atrocities are being committed. So the international community and humanity at large have failed Tigray and are continuing to fail Tigray, despite Abi's best attempts to block access to Tigray and keep what's been occurring in Tigray a secret, some stories are coming out and they're horrific. I think the worst part is this is just the tip of the iceberg. 80% of Tigray is inaccessible. So every story we hear, we know that there are thousands that we're not. And some of the stories that we'll hear throughout this podcast of the victims are just heartbreaking. Yeah, in this war, we've seen... The disturbing way Ethiopian and Eritrean forces have weaponized rape and have used it as a weapon of war. And the trauma that individuals go through after experiencing sexual violence doesn't just go away after the incident. It has long-lasting effects. And speaking about rape is already hard enough, but being in a conservative society like Ethiopia, where conversations about rape aren't had whatsoever, makes speaking up much harder. What I'm about to read are the accounts of two girls by the name of Mona Lisa Abraha and Merhawi. So I would like to give a trigger warning as I will be speaking about sexual violence and rape. They tried to rape me and I was thrown to the ground. Then one of the soldiers fired bullets to scare me, but they hit my hand and then fired another bullet that went through my arm. Abraha recalls from a hospital bed on the outskirts of Tigray's capital, Makele. I was bleeding for hours. Then I had my arm amputated, she says, before breaking down in tears. This is from the LA Times. Marhawi, 27, was separated from her sister and locked in a room, only a thin, dirty mattress. For two weeks, she said, the Eritrean soldiers gang-raped her repeatedly, fracturing her spine and pelvis, leaving her crumpled on the floor. One day, she counted 15 soldiers who took turns sexually assaulting her over eight hours. Her cries of agony punctuated by their laughter. This is from the BBC. Something we want to highlight is why sexual gender-based violence is happening as a war tactic. First, we need to understand like what that is. One is the intent to cause physical harm through traumatic injuries, spread of STIs like HIV, AIDS, and persistent gynecological problems. 
to psychological trauma, which is the short and long-term psychological effects that diminishes the survival's quality of life, as Lula had talked about, which you have its conservative society and how that plays into a factor of recovery. Three, social isolation. These victims are isolated and excluded from their communities. Children are born out of rape and often shunned, and there's a lack of support to reintegrate victims in society. And so the reason we want to highlight why this is being used is the goal. Some of the goals are one, to inflict, you know, physical pain, but to do so in a way that's so horrific that these women would not be able to give birth in the future. And this is another means of genocide by preventing future Tagadu births. And this is something like we've seen before, specifically think back to the 70s and 80s with the dirt when they were causing atrocities throughout the city. Yeah. And we're also seeing the killing of boys and men. And it feeds into weaponizing rape because essentially they're trying to limit the future population of Tigray. So a lot of times these rape victims are being told that they're going to be giving birth to monsters and that Tigrayans are monsters and that like Tigrayan wombs should no longer give birth to Tigrayan children. But on top of this, hunger is also being weaponized. It's pretty much well known now that there's enough food in the world to ensure that no one goes hungry, that pretty much... A lot of food insecurity is caused because of conflict in a war. Specifically, Ethiopia is weaponizing hunger through the systematic denial of assistance. So we know that before the war, as an attempt to weaken Tigray, the Ethiopian government refused assistance to Tigray to combat the locust infestation. But despite this, Tigrayans were able to preserve their harvest for the most part through funding from the diaspora and some NGOs, and just the sheer resilience of the people coming together to fight this collectively. But we know now that despite all these efforts in protecting the harvest, Tigrayans pretty much have lost their harvest now because it's been pillaged by Ethiopian and Eritrean forces, along with Amhara militia. We also saw the road to Tigray being blocked before the war started, keeping grains from entering. And so we also have the elimination of the current and future food supply. The Ethiopian and Eritrean forces have exercised the scorched earth policy as a military strategy, essentially like outside of just destroying and pillaging factories, schools, hospitals, they've strategically stolen and murdered livestock. There have just been reports on Eritrean soldiers going as far as like literally crushing baby chicks with their feet, killing livestock or stealing livestock and taking it over to Eritrea. They've looted the harvest. They've burned farms to ensure that farmers can't prepare for the next harvest. They've even destroyed commercial, public, and private water supply infrastructure. And so one of the things to also recognize is that it's really easy for these Eritrean forces to pretty much loot Tigray and walk these goods across the border. And that's what they've been doing. And lastly, I'm sure folks are wondering, like, what's happening to the humanitarian aid? Is it reaching Tigray? And so humanitarian organizations from the UN to Doctors Without Borders have stated over and over again since the start of this war, that they have not had unhindered access to Tigray. Eritrean forces have told aid workers to turn around. Aid workers have died. Roads have been destroyed to prevent the transport of aid. And from the latest numbers that we have, an estimated 91% of Tigrayans are starving. And I think a stat that's really stuck with me is 100 children a day are dying in Tigray. And hunger compounds that's like an entire generation of Tagato children who've been pretty much her being wiped out. You know, I want to close up by getting a better understanding of how this has impacted all of you. 
We heard a little bit from Semi earlier, I think. Can you share a little bit more about how it's impacting you personally? I think at first it was just a real sense of loss. Like my parents, I had plans to move back to Ethiopia long term. And so knowing that this place isn't isn't for me anymore has been really hurtful. And for a while I also felt helpless just because I was over here in the States and the first time in my life, like I like to do things and like make action and being here in America during the pandemic and feeling helpless to do something was really weighing on me. But I think now that I have time to process, I'm just determined to, you know, utilize my position here as a student at Berkeley, do whatever I can to help out. I'm getting more involved. I'm doing whatever I can with focus to like help out with the efforts. This has definitely been a difficult year personally. It's been really difficult kind of living what at times feels like parallel lives. I go from working on an advocacy project and reading about the atrocities occurring and thinking about my family and all the people suffering to having my Google calendar notification pop up and remind me that it's time to head to finance class or it's time to head to negotiations. And the mental energy that requires is pretty daunting, shifting back and forth. But I'm also hyper aware of my privileges to a level that I haven't been before. The fact that I'm studying here at Berkeley, that I sleep safely each night without the fear of being indiscriminately shelled, to have access to clean water and food whenever I want, and just to actually feel safe, like my physical well-being isn't being targeted like it is for my family back in Tigray. And so I feel called to use these unearned privileges to go beyond myself. Compassion is active, and so it calls for us to alleviate the suffering of others. And that's kind of what I've been really holding on to because it helps me feel like I have a sense of agency. And also my faith has helped me stay grounded and it calls me to act compassionately. And I just feel extremely fortunate to be surrounded by other Tigrayans in the diaspora like Lula and Sunny and countless others who are doing the same and us coming together and trying to spread awareness and to help stop these atrocities. Yeah, to say these past six months have been difficult would honestly be like an understatement. The amount of like gaslighting I had to endure in the beginning of this war from like individuals I thought were my family and friends, but in turn were really supporting a war that was killing off my family was really hard for me. I feel like now like I've dedicated like all my time outside of school to advocacy. And like if I'm not in class, I'm creating a flyer for my community's like upcoming protest. And if I'm not doing my homework, I'm reading up on all the most recent news that's like coming out from Tigray. And there's like this feeling of nonstop urgency that's constantly flowing through me. And I feel like I have no time to rest. And I believe, because I really do believe that it was by fate that my parents were able to come here 30 years ago. So I feel like, like I said earlier, I it's really my duty because if it wasn't for fate, I would be in Tigray right now and during the same pains my aunts, uncles, cousins, and grandparents are currently experiencing. So I have to continue doing work until my family is safe. How can our listeners get involved? There are a few ways to get involved. The first would be to just donate to organizations that are on the ground and doing good work. And to find a vetted list of said organizations, you go to omnatigray.org. That's O-M-N-A-T-I-G-R-A-Y.org. The second thing you do is just attend and amplify protests. There is an upcoming protest in the Bay Area. I'll let Lula go into that a little bit more afterwards of the dates and what it looks like. The third would be to reach out to your elected officials and to just put pressure onto a national government. The fourth would be to stay informed and engage in individual outreach to raise awareness in the communities you occupy. Like, for example, what Al-Mazul and I are doing today by being here on this podcast. And then the fifth would be to 
form solidarity teams and reach out to Degray advocacy organizations like OMNA and ask them how you could assist and boost their work. So the Bay Area Tigray community will be hosting a two-day national protest on May 21st and 22nd. The 21st, the meeting place will be at Dolores Park in San Francisco. And on the 22nd, to march the 200th day of genocide, we will be meeting at Chrissy Field at 10 a.m. to march across the Golden Gate Bridge. To find more information, please go to the Bay Area Tagaru Instagram page and Facebook page. We'll be sure to put all these links into the description so people can just click on it. Yeah, and I'd love to just add that if the listeners are outside the Bay Area, there are Tagaru communities throughout the U.S. and even internationally that are protesting, and it's just not one protest. These are continuous protests that are happening, I mean. We've been protesting since November, so showing up and helping us amplify the numbers across cities from San Diego, Seattle, Houston, D.C., New York, Melbourne, London. You can most likely find protests within your city if you look. And typically, if you just search for your city plus Tagaru on Instagram, that's typically how folks are sharing when protests are happening. Okay. Well, I want to thank you all for taking the time to share your stories with us today on the podcast. Thank you, Almaz, Sami, and Lula. And let's have more conversation around this in our communities, within our friends, circles, classmates, to just really raise awareness for what's going on on the other side of the world. Thank you.